Hi, this is Allison Sheridan of the NoSilicast podcast, hosted at podfeed.com, a technology geek podcast with an ever so slight Apple bias. Today is Friday, August 28th, 2020, and this is show number 799. Well, speaking of big numbers, this week's episode of Chit Chat Across the Pond was the positively delightful podcast episode as Bart and I celebrated 100 episodes of Programming by Stealth. When we hit 99 installments, Bart declared that for 100, there should be cake. So, secretly behind his back, I got his darling beloved to deliver him a piece of cake right as we started recording, and Steve delivered one to me. To say that Bart was surprised and delighted, would be an understatement. It was super fun to surprise him with. He's like, how did you get me cake during a pandemic? Especially since his darling beloved is not allowed to leave the house because he has uh, medical conditions that would make it dangerous for him. So we were uh, we were able to do it between uh, him and I, and it was a lot of fun to surprise Bart. So the actual episode, uh, episode 100, was an opportunity for Bart and me to share our respective solutions to the challenge from Programming by Stealth 96. That was to create a web app that would allow a podcaster to send a time of their choosing to another podcaster and reveal the time in the other podcaster's uh, time zone. Now, he didn't put a lot of restrictions around what this web app should be like, so our solutions turned out to be completely different. And we were both going to describe our solutions, and I begged to go first because I said, you know, going after you is like being the comedian who had to go on after Robin Williams. Well, it was funny. He replied that he wanted to go first for the same reason, which really surprised me because his stuff is always so much prettier than mine. But he explained that I took on a much harder task than he did. In his solution, he basically picks a time in his own time zones and then in his own time zone, I should say, and allows him to copy a URL from the site and send it on to the other people. And then they see the time he chose in their own browser in their own time zones. But, uh, you know, he added a few other bells and whistles, but uh, yeah, that's the basic idea of what it does. Now, my solution allows the user to enter two time zones of their choosing and drag a slider to shift time to see how convenient it is for the other person and then copy the time chosen. I was pretty pleased with my user interface and Bart even borrowed one of my ideas to use a utility called Bootstrap Collapse to show and hide certain page elements. To be doing something that Bart wants to emulate? <laughs> that warmed my little heart. A fun fact about our solutions is that Bart worked on his for an entire three days. I worked on mine for two months on and off. But you know what? I'm still proud of what I was able to accomplish, even though it took me a very, very long time. You can listen to this fantastic episode of Programming by Stealth in your podcatcher of choice by searching for Programming by Stealth. And you can read Bart and my tutorial show notes for this episode by going to pbs.bartificer.net. Thank you, Bart, for this amazing accomplishment of 100 episodes of a podcast learning to program in audio. Well, I've been stewing in my own juices over the past few weeks as every single tech podcaster on the entire planet has been hollering into their microphones about how Apple is a horrible, greedy, awful company that mistreats their developers and tortures their users. I know everyone isn't singing the same song, but it really starting to feel like it. I'm not necessarily taking a position on any of this, but what aggravates me the most is that no one seems to be offering solutions other than Apple should love third-party app stores or Apple shouldn't charge anything to be in the app store, neither of which are viable solutions to anything without a lot of further development of those ideas, right? There's a lot of problems with both of those quote-unquote solutions. 
So when last week I heard Rod Simmons repeating on the SMR podcast the same kind of drivel, I asked these guys to let me on the show to tell Rod exactly how wrong I thought he was. Seriously, what kind of podcast lets you do that? I think the trick here is that at any moment, two of the three hosts are always willing to gang up on the third one just for the comedy. So Chris Ashley and Rob Dunwood were more than happy to let me come on the show because they knew I was going to be making fun of Rod. Anyway, we had a complete blast as always, and I seem to remember partway through Rod and I actually came up with a workable solution to the App Store problems for Apple. Can't remember what they are right now, but you got to go listen to the show. It was a lot of fun. In any case, you will hear a rant you haven't heard me say on the NoSillaCast, so go subscribe to the SMR Podcast in your podcatcher of choice, or go to smrpodcast.com and look for the show entitled, Come Tell Us with Allison Sheridan. It's a lot of fun. As a tech podcaster, one of my jobs is to constantly buy new gear and then back into the reasons why I needed to upgrade my equipment. It's pretty much in the handbook when you get started in tech podcasting. Now, on very rare occasions, there is an actual problem to be solved, which results in the outlay of funding. I'm happy to tell you that I can justify the $500 I just spent from the money provided by all of the fine Patreon members of the PodFeed podcast. Before we launch into the problem and solution, I want to provide a smidge of background about microphones. I'm sure you're familiar with the concept of USB microphones. They either come with a built-in USB cable, or you can connect one between the mic and the PC or Mac, and the system automatically recognizes it, and you're ready to use it as a mic input. But big girl mics are not USB mics. They have what's called an XLR connector. A traditional XLR connector is round with three large pins. In order to connect an XLR microphone to your computer so the signals are recognized, you need some sort of interface between the mic and computer. You can use a mixer to provide this functionality, but there's a lot of complexity that comes along for the ride. We had Anthony Lemos on Chit Chat Across the Pond number 633 to explain mixers to us, so if you're interested in learning more, go check that out. I tell you, I used to have a mixer, and I didn't like it one bit. It was big, and it was complicated, and I pretty much hated it. I prefer to use a simple interface with a built-in preamp that gives me an XLR connector into which I plug my mic, and then a cable that plugs into my Mac. For years, I've been using a Shure MVI USB interface. They're pretty inexpensive at like 129 bucks at Sweetwater right now. I like the simplicity of this interface. It has just a few buttons on the front so, uh, that allow you to choose a digital signal processing setting, a DSP setting, which I keep set to voice, and then a volume input control and a headphone jack on the front. It's really kind of a set it and forget it device. Now I monitor my own voice from my mic as I'm recording, because that's the only true way to know if you've got noise or hum or any other problems coming into your recordings. It's annoying as heck to monitor your own voice, though, because there's latency between when the sound leaves your lips until it goes through the interface and back into your ears from your headphones. With a lot of latency, you tend to start slowing down your speech. Luckily, I've gotten used to it, but it is still annoying. So what's the problem to be solved? I actually mentioned the problem to be solved when I did the review of the Shure Digital Recording Kit that I bought a while ago. You see, I've been hearing clicking on the line when I'm recording if I've got a heavy load on my system. There's two circumstances where I can hear this clicking. The first is when I'm recording the live show. I've got lots of video I'm broadcasting from uh, to Steve, I'm recording the podcast, and I've got a fair amount of graphics going on between camera video and my recording app being sent in video to the live stream. I've repeatedly asked the live audience if they can hear these clicks, and they say they can't and neither can Steve, but I know that those clicks are there because I can hear them. 
The second time a uh, situation where I have this happen is when I'm recording video tutorials for Screencast Online. My lovely editor, J.F. Brissett, has a keen ear and he's really helped me up my audio game to get my sound as pristine as possible. A single click sound might get past him in a recording, but when I'm recording the raw footage for Screencast Online, I'll get as many as 20 or 30 or 40 in a 40-minute show. Every single one of those little clicks means I have to do a voiceover of what I was saying when the click occurred and replace the audio that goes with the video. I can't just replace a single word or it's going to sound really different and overdubbed and out of place. I have to replace entire sentences or phrases. It's very tiresome and it really adds to the workload and it's just complete and utter waste. Now, I thought my trusty Shure MVI might be failing, but when I tested the new one in the Shure recording kit, the clicking did not go away. That's why I sold the kit to Rod Simmons of the SMR podcast. And by the way, his audience is very happy I did that because he was using AirPods as microphones before that, and it sounded horrible. Anyway, his audience is happy, and I went back to using my original Shure MVI, but I still had the clicking sound. I asked my favorite audio guru, Dave Hamilton of the Mac Geek Gab, for help finding a solution to this clicking problem. He's a great resource because he's not just a podcaster, he's also a musician, so he's all over this audio stuff. He suggested that the problem was very likely buffering because USB isn't fast enough, and when it catches up, it makes a little click. The solution he suggested was a faster interface. In other words, one that uses Thunderbolt instead of USB. It was time to go shopping. Before searching for a device, I had a set of requirements. Number one, I didn't want to have to sell a kidney to buy it. Number two, I also didn't want to have something complicated. I said I'd had a, a, a mixer before, and I definitely didn't want to go down that road. Number three, it positively had to have a mute button on it so I could mute my mic when recording with other people. Number four, I only need one XLR input since it's just little old me in here, but I was willing to move up to one that had, say, two XLR mic inputs for the rare occasions when I do record with someone else in the same room as me. Dr. Gary really likes to record in person side by side with me, which is really weird because I'm, you know, I'm used to doing interviews with people across the globe, but being in the same room is really weird. So it would be a little bit easier. And I think the sound might be better if I could have her on an XLR mic into an interface. So having two would be okay, but not a requirement. One was fine. Number five, I wanted something that would take up a very small footprint on my desk. I didn't want a big old mixer. Like I said, those things are giant. They're like, you know, bigger than my laptop. I know they make smaller ones, but anyway, I didn't want anything big. Now, number six, I also figured if I'm going to move to Thunderbolt, why would I buy old and busted Thunderbolt 2 when I have new hotness Thunderbolt 3 on my computer? No way was I going backwards to Thunderbolt 2. I looked at a lot of options, and it seemed that I was going to have to trade off either selling that extra kidney to get Thunderbolt 3, or I could get Thunderbolt 2, but I couldn't have both. The lost kidney models were also massive, complex pieces of hardware. The smallest ones had maybe four XLR inputs, so even those were physically large. I chatted with JF about my hunt, and he explained that he and Don McAllister use a Thunderbolt 3 interface, recently rebranded to be called the Universal Audio Apollo Solo Thunderbolt 3 interface. I decided to look at how well the Apollo Solo might meet my requirements. While starting with price, at $500, the Apollo Solo isn't quite kidney-selling territory, but it was kind of at the outer limit of what I really wanted to spend. $1,000 would have been out of the market, $700 would leave a mark, but at least $500 was way, way less than most of the Thunderbolt devices I found out there. 
In terms of complexity, the Apollo Solo looked fairly simple compared to a lot of the other devices, but there were a lot of words in the tech specs that I didn't understand, and it had a few buttons on the hardware that completely mystified me. I mean, one of the buttons is a diagonal line that connects to a horizontal line. One of them is the Greek phi symbol. <laughs> Seriously, what is that anyway? But you know what? It did have pretty lights and a nice giant dial on it with lights that go in a circle around it, so it was pretty low on the complicated scale. Looked like I might be able to figure it out. The Apollo Solo does have two XLR inputs, so it meets that low complexity requirement as well. Now, the giant dial on the front controls the volume, and if you press it in, it mutes. Yay! It met that requirement. Then I kept reading, and I discovered it doesn't mute the mic input. It, might, it mutes the output to the speakers or your headphones. I was so bummed. I gave up on the Apollo Solo right then and there because I use the mute on my Sure MVI all the time when I'm recording with someone else. Just today I was recording with Bart and I had to keep clearing my, th my throat and I didn't want to do it into the mic, so I would just mute my mic. Anyway, I started my search again and guess what? None of the Thunderbolt interfaces I could find had to input mute buttons. I bothered JF again, and he suggested a physical mute block that you put in between the mic and the interface. When I started looking at these devices, they were expensive. They were like $100 just to mute, and they were what my father used to describe as ugly as sin. On top of being ugly and expensive, they came in two varieties. Some don't technically mute your audio, but rather attenuate the signal so it can be barely heard. The second variety completely muted, but they made a clicking sound when they muted. Since my main objective is to get rid of clicks, adding them back in, even if predictably so, didn't sound like a good solution. I asked Dave Hamilton if he had a suggestion, and he said he didn't use one because his giant complicated uh, uh, mixer did have a mute button. He said he knew that Leo Laporte used one and suggested I ask him. I asked Leo and he looked it up for me. He has the Proco Shortstop from ProcoSound.com, and this one could be used as a foot pedal as well. I checked it out, but guess what? The review said they could hear clicking on it, so that one was out too. At this point, I put a pause on the entire idea of replacing my interface. But then, Rogue Amoeba came out with their new version of SoundSource. In my exploration of the new release, I discovered that they added the ability to put up a menu bar icon of your microphone, and when you tap that menu bar icon, it would mute your microphone. Now, I knew I could do it with other software solutions. I mean, I'm running Rogue Amoeba's Audio Hijack right now, and I could mute from there, but I would never know quickly where is that button. Having it in the menu bar, I know exactly where it is, and I could immediately mute my microphone. So having that predictable place on my screen that didn't take up any real estate because it's just sitting up in the menu bar, having that in my recording, I could have my precious mute switch and eat it too. No, that's not the way it goes. I could have my precious mute switch and get the interface that I really wanted. You've probably figured out by now that I did buy the Apollo Solo, so it's not a spoiler for me to talk about the size of the device. In the pictures, it looked quite diminutive, but it's still, and it is still way smaller than other devices, but I was kind of surprised by how big it was. The Shure MVI is two by two inches, while the Apollo Solo is seven inches wide and five inches deep. That's nearly nine times as big. I'm still fussing around with where to put it on my desk, but I'm sure I'll find a good place for it eventually. The Thunderbolt 3 cable that it came with uh, that came with it is pretty short, so my options on desk location are a bit limited by that as well. I might just uh, have to use a longer Thunderbolt 3 cable, and that means I gotta find one or buy one, and they're expensive when they get longer. 
Well, it's probably time that I finally tell you what I think of the Apollo Solo Thunderbolt 3 audio interface. I love it. But let's get to why I love it after I tell you about the things that make me a little crazy. When I first got it, I was positively baffled with how to use it, even to start recording. I was whining to JF about it, and he suggested a video call where he walked me through the device at the very simplest level, just enough to get me started. Luckily for me, JF has the same interface, as I said. He's a musician, so he understands devices like this. And most importantly, he's a great teacher. So here's what I learned. The big round dial on the right with the pretty yellowish-green lights that go around it is the volume dial, but it serves several masters. There's a monitor button below it that, when pushed, toggles the volume between two options, headphones and monitor. Wait a minute, it's a monitor button that sets it to monitor. What the heck is monitor? Well, on the back of the device, where the two XLR connectors are located, there are also two jacks to connect external speakers. The idea, I guess, is people listen to the music they're mixing on big girl speakers or on headphones, and that's what they mean by monitor. I only need to make sure the button has me set to headphone, not monitor, because I use headphones when I'm working. But that's, that's not the only thing that pretty volume dial controls. Also under the volume dial, there's a button that says preamp. When that button is pressed, the volume now controls the input gain of the attached microphones. In a million years, I never would have figured that one out on my own. Now remember, there's two XLR jacks on the back. Hitting the preamp button uh, toggles which mic input you're controlling. This means if I'm recording someone else in the same room, I can change our input gain independently. So that's pretty cool. Now I don't want to go through the rest of the buttons on the front because while JF did explain what they did, we determined that I don't have to worry my pretty little head about them with just yet. He is going to make me learn how to use them and I'm looking forward to that, but I don't have to know now. So last week it was crazy hot and humid around here, and as I explained on the show, we don't have air conditioning because this close to the beach, it didn't used to get that hot. Times are changing though. In any case, I'm super sensitive to any extra heat when it's that hot, doing things like turning off monitors whenever possible. So when I touched the dial on the Apollo Solo after using it for a while, I was shocked to find that it gets super hot. I got out my laser temperature gauge, as one does, and it was 104 degrees Fahrenheit on the dial. The box itself had some areas in the high 90s, but I did find one spot on it that was 103 degrees Fahrenheit. I'm a little concerned about that, but I'm not sure it's unusual for the device. I'll probably shoot a note to my little friend Kenneth Lindsay at Sweetwater and ask him whether that's common. I was surprised to find the front headphone jack wasn't the three and a half millimeter, you know, like eighth inch size I'm used to, but instead it was the larger quarter inch for professional headphones. Luckily, I kept my giant bag of audio and cable connectors from back when I had the big girl mixer, so I had an an adapter to go from a quarter inch to eighth inch. Well, we should probably spend a brief moment at this tome of an article talking about whether or not the Apollo Solo solved my main problem. It 100% did fix the problem of the random clicks. I used the interface for the podcast last week, and I'm using it right now, and there are absolutely no clicks while broadcasting my audio and video to the live show. More importantly, I've been working on a tutorial for Screencast Online about the messaging app Telegram, and I have not once had to do a single voiceover to remove a click on the audio. I've had to do a lot of voiceovers because I messed up my words, but that's a whole nother problem that no amount of audio gear will ever fix. Now, there's one thing that's very hard for me to get used to with the Apollo Solo, and that's near-zero latency. I can barely tell that I'm actually monitoring my audio, so it's that close to real time. It's kind of disconcerting after all these years, to be honest. I'm used to the latency, 
I looked up the latency on the Universal Audio website, and they say it's 1.1 milliseconds. That is bananas. Now, I would have said that I like the Apollo Solo if it only got rid of those annoying clicks and had low latency. But there's something else that takes it from like to love. When I'm recording for Screencast Online, as I explained, I worked very hard to have my audio be pristine. I even hang a moving blanket over the window in my studio to deaden the room echo, which, by the way, I'm far too lazy to do for my own podcast. I only do it for Don. Well, for a long time, I've been annoyed that I could hear a very low-level hiss when I was recording. I was blown away when I started recording video and audio with ScreenFlow, and there was zero hiss. I mean, nothing. When I have a pause between words, it is simply flatlined. I have absolutely never heard my audio sound this good. I wonder if anyone listening to the NoSillicast has noticed any improvement in the audio as well. Not sure you guys are as picky as I am and JF is, but if you have noticed a change, I'd sure like to hear about it. As much as I love the Apollo Solo, the software that came along with it is crazy complicated and definitely overkill for my needs. Jeff is going to give me another private lesson all about the plugins that came with the hardware, so I'm going to withhold judgment on the software for now. I do have to say, I think their software delivery has a huge upsell feel to it. You see, my device came with about a dozen plugins, which I don't know how to use yet, but they install 191 more of them that I do not own, just so they can try to get me to buy them. And they install these plugins all over the place in your system library. They even create folders in the application support subdirectory of the library for applications you don't even own. I have directories full of plugins for apps like VST and Avid now. I've never owned those. I don't know why I have to have those folders. Well, other than filling up my drive with stuff I don't need and I don't want, there's another problem with this. When I opened Audio Hijack from Rogue Amoeba under Audio Unit Effects, I found these 191 plugins I do not own, all mixed in with the audio unit effects that come with macOS and the audio unit effects I do own from Universal Audio. I couldn't even tell which Universal Audio plugins I do own because they were all mixed together. To say I was annoyed would be an understatement. I spent hours hunting through my system looking for every directory where they hid them and deleting them. And then I plugged in my interface and it wouldn't function at all. I was forced to re-download the multi-gigabyte installer and put them all back. The good news is I wrote to the uh, Universal Audio Support, and my little friend Michael B. has been super helpful trying to help me solve this. He explained where to look to get rid of just the stuff that's messing up Audio Hijack. And by the way, it's in Library Audio Plugins Components. But he did point out that every time I do a software update, I'll have to move those unlicensed plugins again. Then he told me about an open-source Ruby script called Hide and Seek UAD Plugins. While he was quick to point out that this script is not endorsed or supported by Universal Audio, he told me others have found it useful and thought maybe it could help me out. I ran the tool from the command line and it moved the plugins to folders entitled unused, but I haven't yet figured out the process to put back the ones I do own. But at least for now, Audio Hijack is pristine again and I've probably got more and more hours of entertainment ahead of me to learn how to get the, the script to do even more. The bottom line is if you're starting out podcasting, just get a good USB mic like the Audio Technica ATR2100. Sorry, the ATR2100 for $99 on Sweetwater, and just get going recording some shows. But if you're going to get a big girl mic and want pristine audio with zero latency, so you can monitor your own sound without your head exploding, then check out the Universal Audio Apollo Solo. You can't have mine because I love it too much.
When it came time to replace our aged Drobo 5N, I chose to go with Synology because of the vibrant ecosystem of things you could install on their network-attached storage devices. I didn't have a specific problem to be solved other than needing a massive amount of disk that was rated in some way to protect against a single disk failure. I figured over time I'd find cool things to do with it. Well, this week I did something super awesome. I can't put this in the category of I have made fire because the solution's been out there for ages, but it's still pretty cool and it's new to me, so I'm going to tell you about it. The problem to be solved is that a lot of IoT devices are not HomeKit compatible. While we've steered towards HomeKit compatibility gear whenever we're, whenever possible, we still have a lot of devices from Ring and Wise that are not compatible. The Ring and Wise apps both work really well, so it's not a huge hardship to have those open in separate apps to control the gear, but it would be swell to have them visible and controllable in HomeKit. Well, the internet is a wonderful place, and clever people have figured out how to achieve this goal. Homebridge is an open source project that helps connect non-HomeKit compatible devices to HomeKit. That framework is supported by open source developers who build the plugins for the specific devices. Now, the cool thing about Homebridge is that you can install it on wee tiny computers like a Raspberry Pi, or you can install it on grown-up computers. I helped my friend Pat Dangler set it up on her Raspberry Pi, and it was super fun. Super geeky fun. Lots and lots and lots of terminal fun. It's definitely doable, and it works great, but it's definitely not accessible to normal people. A company called Hoobs, that's H-O-O-B-S, decided to try and make it more accessible. They sell a nicely packaged Raspberry Pi with Hoobs pre-installed onto a micro SD card and then a very pretty web interface to add the plugins for the various devices you own. The Hoobs, uh, what do they call it? Hoobs in a box is $170. If you already have a Raspberry Pi, which you can get for well under $50, and like 25 bucks in a lot of cases, you can buy an 8 gigabyte micro SD card with Hoobs pre-installed for only $20. But since this is open source world we're talking about, they also have a free download of the Hoob software with a donation button suggesting $7. So it seems to me that if I could get Hoobs onto a computer, I could maybe install plugins for my non-HomeKit devices and get them onto HomeKit. I do have a Raspberry Pi, uh, thanks to Ed, but I also have this shiny new Synology disk station. One of the ways you can install software on a Synology is to use what's called a Docker container. Simply put, Docker containers package up code and all of the dependencies to make that code run. This means not just the code, but the runtime environment, the system tools, system libraries, and settings. If you can get a Docker container for what you want to do, you don't have to worry your pretty little head about all the rest. From the development side, a Docker container is extra cool because they isolate the software from the environment where you're running it, so the application runs exactly the same regardless of the operating system on which you run it. In the Synology web interface, they have a thing called Package Center and with a single-click installer for Docker. Once you get Docker installed, the next step is to find the Docker container you want to run. As of right now, there are 6,145 Docker containers in the registry tab of the Docker app on my Synology. I think they call this the tyranny of choice. Luckily, in this exercise, we know that we run, want to run Hoobs so we can do a search. Well, a quick search reveals six different Docker containers listed with a developer's handled, handle followed by slash Hoobs. So there's six different ones by six different developers. I have to admit at this point that I didn't figure out pretty much any of the rest of what I did on my own. 
Dave Hamilton put a link, uh, talked about a in a recent episode of the Mac Geek Ab about a really good video tutorial by someone called Tech with Eddie. And I watched that video and it really helped me get going. I should warn you that my definition of a really good video tutorial is one that is thorough, doesn't spend 20 minutes up front yakking about what they're going to tell you, they don't use any music, and they go really, really, really fast. Tech with Eddie goes through the menus really, really quickly, but you can always go back and rewatch what he did. You can stop and pause and go back and forward. If it's a slow plotting tutorial, those are really hard for me to sit through, so I like Eddie's style. Now, I'm not going to walk you through all of the steps to follow, but rather I'm trying to give you the bigger picture of the pieces. So we've got hardware to run everything, in my case, a Synology. Then we've installed a Docker container into the operating system. Now we're going to install Hoobs into the Docker container. Installation does require flipping some switches in the OS, like turning on SSH to be able to secure shell, secure shell, I should say, into the Synology. You know, like you might do with your Macs to work on them from another room within your network. There's a few terminal commands as well, but they're not terribly daunting. Nothing like what Pat and I had to do. Once Hoobs is installed, you actually completely leave the Synology disk station web interface. In the browser, you go to the IP address of your hardware, Synology or Raspberry Pi, but you append it with the, I'm sorry, yeah, you do. You append it with the port you specified in the Hoobs and SSH setup. I have to confess that two days after setting up Hoobs, I went to my Synology to look at the Hoobs setup, and for the life of me, I couldn't figure out how to get back to Hoobs. I forgot that you don't do it from within the Synology interface. Luckily, I'd stored my password to the Hoobs interface in 1Password, so I found the URL in there. Sometimes my memory just slays me. The Hoobs interface is pretty and clean, and a simple click of a plugin icon in the sidebar allows you to search for the plugin to install for your IoT devices. With the blank screen in front of you, it's not entirely obvious what is available to you. Luckily, I knew that Ring was pretty much the top thing most people wanted to add to HomeKit. The plugins you'll find when you do a search come from the open source community, so like with the, the installation of Hoobs, you might find several plugins for the same devices from different developers. Some of the open source packages have been certified by the folks at Hoobs, so probably not a bad idea to try those first. Luckily, Hoobs had certified plugin, a certified plugin for Ring, so I didn't have a hard decision to make on which one to install. Like I did with the Hoobs installation itself, I'm not going to walk through the installation and configuration of plugins because it's actually different for every device you have. The fantastic news was that after I got the plugin for Ring installed, all of my Ring devices showed up in HomeKit. It was truly awesome. I could see our three Ring cameras, I could see all of the security sensors on all of the windows and doors, and I could even set the alarm system from Ring all within the Home app. I think one of the values that the Home app brings is that you can organize your devices by room. Now with all the Ring devices joined and joining in that context, I can go say to our entrance room and see the carriage lights out front, the status of the August lock, and a Ring video doorbell. In the yard room, I can see our Ring floodlight and Ring spotlight cams, along with our HomeKit-enabled Ratio sprinkler system. We used to use a 1990s home security system that was built in our house, and the one advantage it had over the Ring was that it had little lights on the keypad that would show you which zone had a window or door left open. With the Ring system, you don't really have an interface for that. When you try to alarm your house, the Ring will say, all right, a door or window is open, but I'm going to leave it up to you to run furiously around your house trying to figure out which one. 
But with Ring and HomeKit now, I can look at my entire house all on one page and brightly lit up our two boxes right now showing my kitchen window and family room sliding room door are sliding door are both open. It's way better than any solution I've seen before. We did have a funny moment when we saw our Ring alarm in HomeKit with two controls. One was a slider with off, away, and home, which are the three settings for the alarm. The other was simply a toggle switch with a power icon on it. Curious what that was, we tapped it. Guess what that power icon does? It sets off the alarm. That was a fun little treat for our neighbors at 7.30 a.m. on a Sunday morning. I'm sure they appreciated it. Now, I have to confess that this entire exercise was just to see if I could figure out how to do it. I do a lot of tech stuff for that reason. But then Steve pointed out to me that ever since I put Ring into HomeKit, the Ring cameras are much more responsive. We've always been a little bit disappointed at how long it takes to get live video from our doorbell, and we even upgraded our Ring doorbell hoping to improve it. If anything, the upgraded one, the response seemed to be even worse. But with it in HomeKit, it's maybe two seconds from when we tap the camera until we're watching live video. I call that a huge success. We haven't even started doing any kind of scenes and stuff, but now we have a lot more fun we could have. I was really hoping to install a Hoobs plugin to get my WISE cameras, lights, and switches into HomeKit. WISE devices have multiplied like rabbits around here, so having them in HomeKit where I could control them with Siri and scenes like, it's showtime, would be awesome. Unfortunately, it looks like it's not meant to be, at least for me. The plugin that will add WISE devices to HomeBridge or Hoobs is called Camera FFmpeg. But in order for Camera FFmpeg to control the cameras, you have to flash the firmware on the WISE cam with their R, uh, what is it, RSTP implementation. To quote WISE on doing this, RTSP is not a stock feature with the WISE cam and is a beta feature that requires the installation of different firmware. Using the RTSP firmware will prevent the camera from supporting any future functions or features in the WISE app. In other words, they will no longer be WISE cams, just pieces of hardware you bought from WISE. Sadly, that would be a no for me. Anyway, I was poking around on the Hoobs website, and they had the logos of some of the bigger companies Hoobs can connect to, and one of them was Tesla. Turns out, if you put your Tesla in HomeKit, you can remotely, uh, through HomeKit, unlock doors, open the trunk, open the charge port, start charging, and even enable keyless driving. I asked Steve if he wanted me to set it up for him, and I think his exact words were, do your car first, I will be right behind you. Another cool use for Hoobs or HomeBridge is if you've got devices that you bought from a company before they added HomeKit cap capability. For example, we have a bunch of current Belkin switches, but our older Wemo switches from Belkin are not HomeKit compatible. I think maybe I'll work on those next before allowing self-driving via Siri to my car with HomeKit. To review the process one more time from the top level, you install plugins for your devices into Hoobs, which is Homebridge under the hood, which in turn is installed in a Docker container that is installed on the Synology. Easy peasy, right? Well, to be honest, the whole process only took me around 90 minutes and that included watching the video to learn how to do it. I'm delighted that I found a valuable thing to do with my Synology other than just using it as a giant pile of disks, and I'm even more delighted that Steve likes the performance of our Ring devices now that they're in HomeKit. 
As you learned in the first segment, this fine-sounding audio with no clicks and no hiss is coming to you thanks to the generosity of the patrons of the Podfeet podcast. If you'd like to help make the show sound better and better year over year, or you'd just like to contribute because you learned so much from these shows, I hope you'll consider to go- going over to podfeet.com Patreon and choosing a dollar amount that's right for you and your family. If you can't afford to do so, do not spend one single second thinking about it. But if you can't afford it, even a dollar a week adds up when enough people do it. Well, it's that time of the week again. It's time for Security Bits with Bart Bouchats. How are you today, Bart? I am doing just fine. Thank you very much. I had another slice of lovely cake uh, with my lunch. <laughs> so uh, I will have told the audience by now about our, our fantastic time uh, having our 100th episode of secure of uh, Programming My Stealth. That was amazing, wasn't it? It really was. Uh, and we have a, a family Teams call every Sunday, so I got to tell the whole story again this morning. And we all got to, we got to hear the full story of how the cake came to be and all of the scheming my darling beloved husband had to do to get me secret <laughs> cake in the middle of a pandemic. It was wonderful. Oh, that's great. Well, you know, we had uh, uh, we have two friends that come over and we sit uh, like 10 feet apart in the backyard and have a have a little drinky poo. And last night we we did that. And then we had some uh, they had, you know, cheese and crackers kind of stuff. And then I said. Maybe I should give them the, the more some Your of the cake. cake. And <laughs> my friend Lori just went, cake! <laughs> just like, like, she sent me a thank you note for cake because, like, the pleasures are so few right now. It's like un, unexpected cake is the best thing ever. Well, there's there's a flavor of low-calorie treat here. They're from a company called Fiber One. I don't know if they exist in America. Sounds but like they a- do these really... Filling and tasty, like less than 100 calorie snacks. Okay. And they just did a new flavor, birthday cake. <laughs> it is amazing. Really? Oh, I've heard of Fiber One. It, it actually sounds like a um, an internet service provider, but... It does to me too, yeah. <laughs> but they do, they, like most low calorie stuff, either tastes of rubbish, is not filling... Or is in some other way unpleasing, and the fiber one stuff is just perfect. Like it's it's re it's perfect size for a cup of tea. Mm. They're really flavorsome. Like the red velvet cake is amazing. The birthday cake one is amazing. The triple chocolate one is. Oh, anyway, yeah. <laughs> Can you tell there's not much security news? <laughs> exactly. Oh, I like one of them. They've got the in the. Uh, I just went to the fiberone.com website and they show. Uh, the the brownie, but they've got ice cream on top of it with with sprinkles. Well, now it's good, <laughs> uh, and probably more than a hundred calories again. <laughs> maybe, maybe. Well, that's good advice. Well, this isn't uh, dining with Bart, but I bet a lot of people would turn into that show. But uh, we're going to talk about nasty security news instead, right? It's not all nasty. Um, it's thin. It's thin. It's I I was I I went and double checked and no I didn't leave stuff behind in my RSS reader. This really is it. It's it, it's the silly season and it's just been quiet. And it's not because the the whole internet came to mostly a slow grinding almost halt this morning. Yeah, I don't know. That was a bit weird. I'm going to listen out on the, the the internet to hear what happened there. That would be very curious what, what the cause of that was. That might be a security story two weeks from now, depending on what happened. Oh, yeah, yeah. Good point. As of this point in time, all we know is it was, um, what is it called? Comlink? No. Yeah. 
You were saying there was no, not coming. Who was uh, you were saying there was someone who was owned by well, they, uh, they level own, three. They own level three. CenturyLink. CenturyLink. That's what it was. Yeah, CenturyLink owns level three, and if level three is is down, then things get a bit dicey everywhere. Right. That's because level three provides so much backhaul between data centers. That's really going to cause trouble. Yeah. So all the data centers were fine. They just couldn't talk to each other or the internet. That. <laughs> yeah, but I I turned on my iMac this morning to write show notes, and I always listen to Apple Music, and there was like a twenty second gap between all the songs. Oh, that's an interesting side effect. Huh. Oh my goodness, my ISP's acting up. This better be fixed by the evening. And then you messaged me to say that half the internet was there. I was like, oh, okay, well, it's not me. <laughs> well, my first thing was I got to change my uh, DNS, you know, but that wasn't going to yeah. help anything. So we had heard it was Cloudflare at first, but uh, that was that was poor information. So Right, well, but if Cloudflare relies on level three for connecting their data centers. Oh, there you go. You know? Yeah. Anyway, um, follow-up. Only three stories in follow-up, and only two of them are COVID. Um, <laughs> Yay. Pennsylvania gets to join the short but growing list of U.S. states using Apple and Google's API. They have promised an app to be released, quote, in September. So that's any time between a few days from now and a month from now. Hey, Sandy said that uh, Nevada added it. And I don't think we talked about Nevada uh, last time we talked. I don't remember Nevada being on the list of states that had made it to my RSS reader. That's that's good. More, more better. Yeah. More better. Definitely. Yeah. That's exciting. It is exciting. Um, in other news, the story that we all knew was inevitable continues to be inevitable. Australia, doggedly refusing to use the Apple and Google API, has been testing their iOS app and have found that uh, on a lot of phones, it works between 27% of the time and 40% of the time. And Great. I'm amazed it can sometimes be almost half functional. <laughs> oh, I, so I'm that, that's a testament to, to amazing programming that they achieve that. It is to me, and they are doggedly, point blank, refusing to do it in an, in an efficient and sensible way. It is, it is baffling to me that they are continuing to blindly stomp down this path that even, even Boris Johnson has seen sense on and is going the other way. So it's amazing. Way, I just found a 95 article uh, from six days ago that shows which U.S. states are using it. And we've got Alabama, Arizona, Nevada, North Dakota. And Virginia and Wyoming, but um, Pennsylvania and South Carolina both say they will participate. Yes, so September is what I have here in the show notes. So they've promised to del del deliver an app in September. So that's anytime from a few days from now until a few weeks from now. Right, right. Where's California? Sorry. I was going to say, you have Congress creators. They're, they're interested in you again. They, they want you to tick the box or pull the lever or touch the touchscreen or whatever you guys do. Yeah, so they're actually going to listen to you now. <laughs> I hope so. You have their attention. Um, meanwhile, do you remember a few years ago, it was a massive story about a giant data breach at Marriott? Oh, yeah, I do. Well, the UK, a bunch of UK citizens have got together. There are 7 million of them affected, um, and they are suing Marriott for the massive data breach. So those 7 million People want some uh, compensation for having their data leaked by Marriott. So oh, it'll be interesting wow. to see how that pans out. Huh. Now, that's it for follow-up, which is the shortest follow-up we have had in months. Yeah, yeah. 
so deep dive isn't all that deep, to be honest, but I figured we may as well pad the notes out with something. <laughs> so this kind of caught my eye because it made the whole uh, the whole sort of Apple tech world explode for a bit. So what we have here is an anecdote which might potentially be worth paying attention to. But I really want to stress the fact that this is a single anecdote. And as you taught me so well, the plural of anecdote is not data. <laughs> so there is a case where it would appear that someone whose iPhone had a six-digit PIN, which is the default these days, the phone was stolen, the PIN was cracked, and the cracked PIN appears to have been used to access the iCloud keychain, at which point the bad guys had far too much fun with the victim. Okay. Uh, bottom line, 30 grand of unauthorized wire transfers, two and a half grand App Store bill, and loss of loads of online accounts. Yikes. So not a good day. And the phone was appears to have been cracked within a few hours of being stolen. So the suspicion is that one of these gray key devices that we know exist was used on the phone. Since the phone was stolen rather than, you know, confiscated at a border or something, the assumption is that these devices have leaked out of law enforcement because the... What? Um, I know, shocking, right? None of us saw that coming. Not even when we talked about the one that was for sale on eBay a couple of months back. Right, they were being sold by people because they'd throw them away and then they'd dig them out of the trash and then sell them. Yeah, they were basically those version one ones were coming on sale on eBay because version two had been released by Grey Key. Um, so, the, I mean, the other possibility, of course, is, you know, stick a backhander to a, to a corrupt cop and get them to do it for you while they're at work. I mean, either yeah. way is perfectly plausible. Right. But right. all of this is assumption, right? The, the bottom line is they had a six digit passcode and their phone was cracked very quickly. So the thinking in the community is maybe, even though there's a lot of people changing their phones back to six-digit passwords because Face ID has become so limited thanks to mask wearing. Right, right. And a lot of people are saying, maybe we shouldn't do that. Maybe we should keep to an alphanumeric password, even if you keep it short. So a six-character password is a hell of a lot more secure than a six-digit password. Wait, wait, can I explain why? You can, absolutely. See if I get this wrong. So from what I've learned uh, uh, from Bart's instruction on this is what you're looking for is is higher entropy. And the higher entropy is caused by more potential values for the uh, each digit. So if you've yeah. just got alphanumeric, each digit can only be 10 different things, zero through nine. But if you sorry, add if in- you've got a pin, you mean? Sorry, if you got a pin, right? Each one of those can only be zero through nine. But if yeah. you made it six characters and you chose alphanumeric, any one of those can be upper or lowercase uh, letters or numbers. So you've got 26 uh, double 52 plus 10, 62 different options for each character. So even if it's only... Multiply. Yeah, and even if it's only six digits long, that's way more entropy than it would have if it was just zero through nine. In fact, you yeah. could make it alphanumeric and still use a, a, a numeric pin. You actually, yes, which is a very interesting trick because what will come up is the keyboard instead of the touchpad. So and we're not even know. sure the gray key devices can deal with that mm. because mm. they're basically brute forcing pin guesses. So they may even just give up when they meet a non-pin keyboard. Interesting. So, yeah, but either way, you're dead right. If, if, you, if that keyboard slides up instead of the pin pad, 
the attacker doesn't know what you've put into that keyboard. So the attacker has to guess right, from right. the whole landscape. And even if they if even if it was a person, not an algorithm looking at it, it wouldn't be obvious that you would think, oh, what if they just put in numbers even though they did this? That wouldn't be a logical first guess anyway. Exactly. And the other thing that I would suggest personally is use a six character, by all means use a six character password, but also turn on that feature that will delete the phone after ten failed guesses. Mm-hmm. Oh, and then and turn is on that not back- standard? I don't know if that's on by default because it's kind of a scary one. Hmm. I've had it on for so many years that to me it's always been there, but I, I don't know. Yeah. Yeah. I probably wouldn't be a good test case either. Wait a minute. Wait a no, because you listen to me. Let me. Yeah. Right. What am I? I do have a phone that I have um, erased and just used for uh, stuff for screencasts online so I can look at it right now. That's probably in security and privacy, I would guess. Uh, that's where i would put it but i know someone who did a whole big diagram of how all those work (laughs) yeah that was ios 11 i think when i did that no i'm never updating it as long as i live i don't blame you that's horrific (laughs) that was my title was no i'm not doing it let's see reset face id no require passcode immediately unlock i thought no i don't see where it is well you guys can go look for it 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 exists as a setting. Um, I'll just use search in settings. <laughs> oh God! There, I mean, you should just be able to say to to to, to S lady, you know, hey, tell my phone to wipe itself after ten failed password attempts. But anyway, yeah, we don't live in that world yet. So let me yeah. ask a question: Do we mm-hmm. know for a fact that the person who lost this phone didn't actually have it stolen by somebody that knew them? We don't, no. Um, so it, it could have been phishing, you know, social engineering that they knew something about the person? Yeah, I mean, maybe they're a Star Trek fan and their pin was, I don't know, 1701 <laughs> and then something to pilot out to six. Yeah, it doesn't work anymore in the day, in in the sixth pin code. But you know what I mean? Yeah. There's Right, right, right. We don't know anything, really, apart from the fact that a credible person said on Twitter that a friend of theirs had this happen. Yeah, I think about, I I always thought about this, this is no longer true, but um, I used to use the same four-digit pin for my um, ATM card as I used for my gym locker. And I always wondered, if somebody watched me open my gym locker, which is pretty easy to do, because, you know, we we tend to go to the same lockers, you could probably see me do it, you know, uh, five times a week, and then they stole my purse by going into that. That'd be a logical thing to guess, right? And that's somebody who doesn't very. know me. Yeah, very logical. It is no longer true. Just I'm telling everybody right now, just so you know. Yeah, No, but you're dead right, actually, because that would be the first thing you would try if you're an nefarious person. If they, they need a four-digit pin to get into this locker, probably use the same pin for all of their cards. Right, so, right. You know, I'd say Why wouldn't you? Yeah. yeah. And it's probably their birthday or something. If you know, if the pin you get to set, mm-hmm. you know, it's... Right. So, yeah. Right. Or or the birthday of their first child or something. Which you can find on the person's driver's license in the purse you just stole from the locker you just opened. Yeah. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. I, we, I just thought of a thriving business model when I get back to the gym. Yeah. <laughs> if, to be lucky enough to be able to have your stuff stolen. Right. right. So it's really the take home is, you know, this is an opportunity to think about your security, but there's so little we know here that it's 
don't base your whole life on this, as I call it in the show notes, a wobbly data point. This is an anecdote. And, and part of what you said was this person used the same six-digit code for their iCloud password? No. You, if you have, if your phone is secured with a PIN, the only thing securing your iCloud keychain is your PIN. Okay, so the, there's, there's a reason not to use iCloud keychain and to use 1Password or LastPass. I look at it differently. There's a reason to actually use a proper security code on your phone. <laughs> well, okay. Um, you know, we've talked a lot about about this, uh, the, the whether to use alphanumeric or a, or a PIN code, and, and I go back and forth on it on the phone, and definitely the mask situation has made that <laughs> argument well, slant. It was such an easy question, right? Once Touch ID came in, I started winning arguments with people, because before Touch ID, no one listened to me. No one wanted to hear me tell them how important it was to secure their phone. But with Touch ID, people are like, it's tolerable to type it once or twice a week. Mm-hmm. And then with Face ID, it was an even easier argument. And right. as of March, everyone's arguing with me again. It's like, no, Bart, that's a terrible idea. But I, I've got another example that I still don't understand is my iPad Pro asks me sometimes twice a day. Wow. It says cool. Face ID needs to, to be enabled. You've got to type in your passcode. And, and it, definitely five times a week, easily. Well, here's a theory, just a theory. Okay. But you know the way, do you remember that the keynote demo Face ID appeared not to work because the cleaners had walked by the i the iPhone and triggered Face ID three times. Yeah, yeah. My, so if my... your iPad is sitting in the kitchen or something, and oh, Steve is walking by, it does. Yeah, yeah. It's often up in a easel position. Yeah, I mean, mine it's is not my main a wake, though. It's not usually a wake. If it's awake when it does that, then it wouldn't be triggering Face ID. It's either but maybe. A... If you brush by it or something, maybe it just wakes up sometimes because it doesn't happen to you all the yeah. time, right? It just happens sometimes. So Steve's foostering around making a cup of tea or whatever. I don't know if you guys drink tea. That's very Irish of me to assume. Um, you know, having a glass of cold water or whatever. Uh, walks past you know, it. Maybe. Walks past it, says off the proximity sensor every now and then. And then maybe. you come downstairs and it goes, I don't, I don't care what, that you're the right face. I've, I've had the wrong face. Well, it's obviously doing something because the battery's dying like crazy lately, but I've, I've been blaming that on the iPad Pro, the uh, new Magic Keyboard. That's interesting, because um, you convinced me to buy the keyboard, and thank you, by the way. Oh, good. Uh, you like I rarely it. spend money then go, thank you. Um, <laughs> but I now know I never need a laptop again. Really? Oh. iMac plus iPad Pro. Done. Oh, wow. And it, so Bart and I argued off off air often about keyboards that I a lot of people don't see a great use for an iPad. And I'm convinced it's because they haven't used it with a keyboard. And it's not the keyboard. The keyboard never won me over. It's keyboard plus trackpad. Oh, interesting. That, that's that got me now because I, I have failed to use an iPad with a keyboard for huh. years. But as soon as the trackpad with that amazing new implementation they gave us in, what is it? iOS 13.5 or whatever, mm-hmm. that changed everything for me. And the fact that command tab and I can, all of my shortcuts, everything just works. The The trackpad works just like you expect. It's, they did such a good job. I'm so impressed. You know, I, it, it, we can, you can tell we have time, um, <laughs> but I, I want to keep talking about this because I, I did an experiment. Well, actually I spilled a little bit of water pretty dangerously close to the iPad where I was a little worried about it. So I set it aside for a couple of days and I used the folio keyboard that I really liked before I got the iPad, the magic keyboard. And I had always kind of felt like, you know, maybe I like them about the same. 
And I didn't think I used the trackpad at all. And I really, really mm -hmm. missed the trackpad. I still can't identify when I'm using it. I, I, I can't see it. But when it was gone, I was really frustrated. I was like, ah, where is it? You know, it, but as soon as I went back to it, I, I can't tell you what it is I'm using it for. It's small things, I'm guessing, because it's probably just your thumb while your fingers are on the keyboard. Your thumb is quickly moving over, moving a thing, moving the cursor. Maybe. And it's so much easier to just move your thumb than it is to reach up and touch, to reach up and touch. You know, I want to move the cursor. It's just so much easier to just, you know. I do find a couple of things frustrating. You said all your shortcuts. There's one that I use a lot of uh, keyboard shortcuts when I'm editing text. So like I'll hit option right arrow to go to the end of a line or is it command arrow, mm. whatever. I use a lot of those or uh, to move around in the, in the uh, uh, text. But one of them is function right arrow and there is no function key on it. And I can't remember I, what that I'm one does. I'm a giant keyboard warrior, and I'm not familiar with function right arrow. What does that do? Yeah, maybe it's not function. What is it? It's something that's not in there. So option right arrow goes word by word. Command right arrow goes to the end of the line. Yeah, they're the two I know. Maybe it's control. No. Whoops, no. Whoops. Control just did spaces. That's not it. <laughs> I'd have to go get my, keyboard, my iPad keyboard to remember what it is. There's something. It's going to the end of the, the document now. Well, I'll come up with it. I'll remember it. But that's that's yeah. There. No, because if it's a keyboard shortcut, I don't know. I want to know it, and then I could be cranky too. Wait, <laughs> no. <laughs> I'll try to find it. But the other thing is, when I tap on a word in a specific spot with the uh, trackpad, I want my cursor to go there, and instead, it selects the word. And I never want it to do that. If I want it to select the word, I will double tap. Interesting. And trying to think. Because on the iPhone, I am such a press and hold person mm -hmm. to, on the space bar to turn, to turn the entire keyboard into a trackpad. I do that so instinctively that that's how I always move the insertion point. I never move the insertion point by touching the text. I'm always touching the keyboard. I wonder what I do on the iPad. I'm going to have to watch myself on the <laughs> iPad. It, it selects it in kind of a light orange. And then I, then I, go, to do, I go to type the thing I wanted to type where I put the cursor. And all of a sudden, I've replaced the whole word. And I don't. Yeah, I, I feel is, like it's yeah. a failure of the of the trackpad that something's wrong with it. But uh, anyway, I wonder if most people prefer it that way. I'd be very Ugh, curious to know. Don't get me started on stuff like that. Well, then make that the behavior everywhere. <laughs> don't don't make it one way in one OS and one way in another. Yeah, they are different, right? To me, you know, the the the, the iPad is a touch enabled device with good keyboard support. And if we ever get a touchscreen Mac, it'll be a keyboard and mouse device with good touchscreen support. So it's yeah. they're not quite the same. I'd like it to be consistent though within you know within an ecosystem. All right, uh, there's a lot that is. <laughs> yeah, well, if I figure it out, Steve just brought me my uh, my uh, my iPad, so maybe we'll come back to. If I I got to figure out what that uh, uh, no, keyboard now. Sometimes it does select. I just it tapped a word and it put it right where I put it, and sometimes it doesn't. I'm gonna have to be more self-aware as I as I use my iPad. <laughs> All right. Well, that probably covers the uh, the non-vulnerability of six-digit passwords, right? The anecdote. Yeah. Don't get. Don't go panicky. Panicky. It's an anecdote. Keep it in context. Okay. Worthy warnings. Then, um, if you're an Android user and you're listening to this show, hello. Um, don't believe every push notification you get on your phone. A few weeks ago, security researchers pointed out that a lot of developers are very sloppy with their keys when it comes to 
one of the really common services used to power notifications on Android. So it's not so much a vulnerability in the system as in a lot of people are just not using it well. They're leaving their keys in their Git repositories or silly things like that. Okay. And if you have, say, Microsoft Key, you can send a push notification that arrives as if it came from Microsoft Teams, say. Okay. And you can write whatever you like. And when it arrives on the phone, it has the Teams icon and it looks like it came from Teams because it actually did because you used the backend notification service for Teams. And the reason I say that is because two companies who were caught flat-footed by this were uh, a certain company called Google, whose Hangouts key was compromised, and a certain company called Microsoft, whose Teams key was compromised. So Android users were receiving bogus push notifications from that appeared to come from Hangouts and Teams, which is pretty darn high profile. So why is this an Android problem and not a Hangouts and Teams problem? Well, it okay. So the the issue is lots of developers are sloppy with their keys, right? But why would it only affect Android? Why isn't it affecting Be, other OSs? Well, because this is a, an Android specific service that's not very well secured. The, so oh, the only, notification service, you mean? Yes. Yes. Okay. So if you're using Apple, you have to use Apple's APIs, and they're completely different. If you're using okay. Android, I think you have a few choices. But one of those choices, the most popular choice, is the one at issue here. And there's two problems. Problem one is people being sloppy with their keys. But in theory, that shouldn't get you very far, because you also need to know what the user has subscribed to receive. And so you need to guess at the keywords they've subscribed to. But it turns out that you can do so much Boolean logic that you could end up writing something that says, send this message to everyone who has not subscribed to Boopity Boo. And that means you can get you can send it to everyone. Oh, oh, that's kind of weird. So you, you basically make a random string, you throw a whole bunch of Boolean algebra at it, and you can trick it into sending it to everyone. So you don't actually have to guess anymore. So that's kind of a security flaw. But the fact that the companies are leaving their keys lying around is also it's a security flaw, cause. so you get to half the blame. Okay, so I, I'm surprised to hear that with Android, you can choose which notification system to use? Well, if you're as a developer. Oh, as a developer. Okay, so the user doesn't say, I want this kind of, of notification system. Well, the user, the user should... Uh, no, the developer is choosing what notifications to send and how the app should be subscribed. So the examples in the, in, the, in the show notes are like, if you're a company selling pizza, you might push a notification to everyone who's not a vegetarian to advertise your meat feast. But you wouldn't want to send that out to the people who've marked themselves as vegetarian. Okay. So they basically have a bunch of examples. But the bottom line is you as the user, if you get a push notification that tells you to do something, don't assume it's legit. Because we know for a fact, Teams and Hangouts were compromised last week. So if such a high profile app can be compromised, if something pops up as a notification and says, please go to this website and enter your username and password, well, don't click on it. Go to the, you know, go directly to the site. Don't. That's annoying. Be suspicious. It's very annoying. I mean, yeah. Hmm. Which is why it's in worthy warnings. Be suspicious of push notifications on Android. There is a known issue. It has hit Microsoft and Google. Ugh, that's that's really annoying. I, I have the answer to the question of what the function on, key is on. used for. Uh, remember, I was saying on the keyboard uh, that I use function. It's it's function delete 
causes a Mac keyboard to do a true delete. Yes. And I use that all the time. But I, I yeah. figured it out what it was by looking at uh, support.apple.com. There's a, uh, there's a just look up keyboard shortcuts and they've got it in the sections. They've got document shortcuts and it turns out control D does the same thing. So if I can teach my brain to do control D on the iPad. Does that work on the Mac too? Wait a minute. I don't know if it's working. Let's see. I want to be this way. Well, it works on the Mac. Yeah, it does work on the iPad keyboard. And it works on the Mac. Okay, so right. that's a new muscle memory we got to learn. Yeah, you know, so that's if, actually easier than function backspace. Maybe. I don't know. Control well, is in no, a weird no, place. Actually, no, on my extended keyboard, it isn't because function is next to the backspace on my extended keyboard. I take that back. Yeah. But actually, if I, since it does work on the Mac, if I can teach myself to use it on the Mac, then it'll, it'll spill over to the uh, iPad and I'll be grand. I had to actually go look for my function key. That's how often I use it. It's good for me, I guess. I use it to turn on uh, voiceover, function F5. Those are the two things I use it for. <laughs> gotcha, gotcha. All um, right. Brian hmm. Krebs is warning that in COVID times, there is a gang targeting uh, corporate VPNs because so many employees are working from home that if you ring up pretending to be corporate IT, your chances of success have massively increased in these times. And they're particularly spear, spear vishing. Try saying that fast. Hmm. So voice phishing new hires. Because these new hires have never been in the office. They've been hired during COVID times and they've always worked remotely. So they are such easy targets for a confident sounding phone call. So how does that work? So I'm a new hire. Uh, you're, you're, a, you're a bad girl. Bad guy, bad girl. And you yep. call me up on the phone and say, what What do you get me to do? You pretend to be corporate IT and get them to log into a dodgy website. Then you have their username and password, and then you can go in and wreak havoc in the corporate web in the corporate. Oh, OK. So you, you tell them uh, this is the VPN site you're supposed to be going to. And then they put in their VPN credentials and now they can get into via VPN to everything inside the corporate network. Correct. So they now have an in to go and escalate their attack, maybe send a spear phishing email to the VP, do a little more reconnaissance. And before you know it, there's a wire transfer for half a million gone wrong. Yikes. Huh. So be careful. And it's dastardly clever. These bad guys are darn smart. How do they get the phone number of the new hire? Chances are you, you, you've somehow there's a leaked Trello document or something. Basically, the whole skill here is you start with a small piece of information and multiply it. Right. So, they so maybe work you for actually, it at least. <laughs> so maybe you actually just start on LinkedIn. That's what I was who's wondering. Who's hiring? Yeah. Yeah. Well, and who's who's responding and who's put themselves up? For, if someone has gotten a job. Hey, look, I just got a new job at blah, blah, blah. Right, because you can see the date people change. Isn't, isn't that how stuff often ends up in the media about Apple hires? Yeah. Where people say, oh, so-and-so's uh, LinkedIn profile just changed yeah. to Apple instead of Facebook or whatever. Okay. So, yeah, and yeah, yeah, there's a lot of information leaks out. So if you can multiply that information, you use it as a toehold, and you, you get a little bit more, and then you use that to get a little bit more, a lot of this spear phishing attack against corporations is very dastardly. And it is really, you take a little bit of information and you just wedge it open and wedge it open mm. and you get yourself deeper and deeper in until you can get away with a wire transfer. I'm glad they have to work and, hard for it. <laughs> yeah, but the payoff can be spectacular. Yeah. I, I can't say very much, but 
I can't say very very much at all at all, but I know of some firsthand anecdotes, and there are many zeros at the end of these wire transfers. Well, it's not good. Um, also in the not good pile, security researchers have published the bugs of a, or the details of an as yet unpatched bug in Safari that allows the leakage of some local files. The most hmm. notable of those is the file containing your browsing history. So Safari is sandboxed. So the damage that can be done is kind of limited to files inside Safari. But Safari knows where you are on the Internet all the time. So that's kind of a privacy leak. If it isn't the world's biggest security leak, it is still a privacy leak. And so that would, shouldn't be would able they, to leak out. How would they get to those local files? They, well, this is a vulnerability, right? They shouldn't be able to. So they trick you to going to a website and the JavaScript on their website oh. can get at your local files when it shouldn't. There you go. There you go. Okay. Okay. Because um, they shouldn't be able to do that, but they can. Don't go and to unsolicited websites. Type them in by hand. So they reported the bug to Apple and Apple said, thank you very much for letting us know. Please don't publish this. Uh, we'll patch this in spring 2021. Oh, so in other words, they published it. So they published it. They were like, yeah, sorry, we have a 90 day turnaround and you've your window has expired. Good day. And they published it. Wow. It's not sky is falling. And one hopes that maybe this will focus Microsoft's mind a little bit. You mean because Apple's you mind. Should... Apple's mind. Sorry. <laughs> um, Everybody gets to play this week. You really do. Um, yeah, so hopefully it focuses minds a little bit. That's a terrible answer to give. Yeah, yeah. Meanwhile, 235 million TikTok, Instagram, and YouTube profiles have been caught up in a data breach. Mm. And a particularly scary one for Americans, particularly it would appear New Yorkers, a bunch of medical data about auto accident victims has been leaked online. It seems that... Wait, these a, aren't related, right? You just moved on to another story. No, I moved on to this. The next okay, one, I was yeah. going to say, wait, why is my medical data in TikTok, Instagram, and YouTube? Okay. No, so there's an AI company who managed to leak a data set which contained medical histories of people involved in auto accidents, including insurance details and stuff like that. And it would appear that the data set was mostly focused in New York. But it is quite a lot of records. Um, so if you're American and maybe you want to read a little more on, um, the link in the show notes is to the security researcher who found the data leak and they describe what they found and how they found it and stuff. So mm. you, if you've recently made a claim related to an auto accident and you're American, it might be worth reading more into the story. Yikes. Meanwhile, notable news. A report from the Institute for Strategic Dialogue, which is a very grand name oh, for a it, UK counter-extremist organization. Hmm. They have been analyzing Facebook's algorithm. And the conclusion they have come to is that Facebook actively promotes, is the quote, Holocaust denial. What? Because it drives kicks. This is yet more evidence of what I have what makes me so cranky about these modern algorithms that are all about engagement. They are incentivized to drive us to conspiracy theories because it gets clicks. YouTube is terrible for that kind of stuff too. And now the Facebook algorithms have been caught doing it as well. So so let's let's make sure we're saying uh, this correctly. Facebook's algorithm as designed actively promotes Holocaust denial. They don't actively promote Holocaust denial. But their algorithm, as designed, causes that as a side effect. Yes, an unintended consequence, shall we say. It's all of, when you maximize engagement, you end up incentivizing people to be angry. 
and you incentivize conspiracy theories because that gets people clicking. And that's why YouTube is such a cess. Like I, the first thing I do on YouTube is turn off autoplay because mm. you are never more than three videos away from a Nazi. Yeah. Like if you just let that autoplay go, you are three videos away from crazy town. Yeah. You know, I, I, I go back and forth on this, on this whole plot because you can't tell a company don't do things to try to get, keep your users engaged. That just doesn't make any sense. Right. If, as, if as I create user, a game that, that I, I want you to stay in that game, I want you to be obsessed with that game. I want you to play that game 24 seven, give up sleep and family and friends to play my game. That's a short term win. Mm-hmm. but a long-term loss because you end up alien. It's sort of the business model of gamblers and stuff, right? Mm. You end up alienating your people over the long run and you end up with customers who hate you, but in the short term you win. Well, but I don't know if I, Facebook I is losing. YouTube. I don't know. I if... do not use YouTube anymore because I'm so, so fed up of the garbage being force fed to me. I have stopped using it completely. They've driven me away successfully. You mean, so if you see a link to something funny, you wouldn't go watch it on YouTube or an instructional video? Every now and then, once or twice a month, I watch one video on YouTube, and the first thing I do is turn off the autoplay. Okay. And then I leave the moment I'm done. Okay, as I opposed to... I used to proactively follow people on YouTube. Oh, okay. I used to spend ages on YouTube, and I just got so angry at the absolute garbage it was feeding me, I left. Interesting. In, in anger. See, I've I've never actually noticed that. I I mean, it, to me, it's just like ads around the corners is what it feels like. Is like I'm not going to click on the belly fat ad. I don't care how many times you show it to me. It's, it's like the ads. It's not the ads. No, but I'm saying video. my brain sees it as that. As it's this moving crap in the corner that I don't want to see, and I I go full screen on the one thing I want to I want to watch, and then I leave. I don't. Uh, I do follow people, but I don't ever do anything with that following. I don't go and sit on YouTube. I go the with problem the is, if you have YouTube open in a window, autoplay is on by default, and the stuff it picks is all just a few videos away from Crazy Town guaranteed. Huh. So if you are doing something with a video in the background, unless you are really careful, you will end up exposed to something horrible. And I just got so fed up of it, of having to babysit it to stop it. Because like I like aviation. And so you start with a video of really nerdy, a cockpit view of a flight from London to Berlin. And you literally, you sit in, in the cockpit, you hear every air traffic control call, every pilot call, everything to the co-pilot. It's nerdy wonderfulness to people like me. Three videos later, world's most deadly plane crashes. <laughs> Garrett, like, I, I, so if you're not proactively stopping it, you are just a few clicks. I love trains. Worst level crossing accident. You see people getting splattered. Just interesting. Without I... you doing anything. They do that to you, and it made me so angry I left. I really am not seeing it. So I just looked at my home screen of uh, YouTube, and it's got things about space and Starlink and smart home stuff, about hoobs and, you know, all the usual stuff you should expect from me. And so I click on one of the videos, and the list down the side is installing hoobs using Docker, uh, adding HomeKit support, live SpaceX hops Starship, and nothing's autoplaying. Okay, I don't know. Oh, what wait a minute, okay. wait a minute. Let me go down a little bit farther. We've just hit uh, something I would never watch politically. Let me just put it that yep. way. Yep. Um, but 90% of it, 90% of it is all tech stuff. 
Right, but if you were to sit there and leave that open and let it autoplay and you get to... But what, it, what do you mean by autoplay? Because they're not autoplaying, they're just sitting there. Oh, you mean you the next in. video? You're talking about when yes. you hit the next, when, yeah. it, when you stop watching and it goes to the next one. Yeah, so you hit play on the thing you wanted and then right. you go on about your life and the tab is open. Mm-hmm. It won't stop. Right, okay, okay. And you're just a few videos away from Crazy Town. Oh, I Are see there... the switch autoplay. Oh my God. That's a nice switch. It's a great switch, but it, every time it's on again. I turn it off the moment I arrive on YouTube and they always turn it back on. Wow. Okay. Yeah, so I'm very cranky about that. Yeah. Uh, and Facebook's algorithm is doing similar stuff. So Facebook um, is actively promoting Holocaust denial. That's awesome. Isn't it? Yeah. You know, I've never talked about this publicly, but I purposely follow a um, Twitter account that every day they show you the the face and name and story of one person who was murdered in the Holocaust. And what an interesting idea! Yeah, it's 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 awful. But it's it's only awful for a little time. But they're not they're not six million Jews. They're you know, Bob. Yeah, they're Bob. And and you know what? Bob was a plumber. And a lot of times it's like this was Bob as a little kid, you know, and the, and you see their their Holocaust photo as with the, you know, the the prison photo. And it's just it just keeps reinforcing that these were real people living real lives that were murdered. And it, it's uh, I don't know. Yeah, it it like, feels you know, like it? I should do it. I owe it to them to do it. That's kind of where I. Where you come well, it's down avoiding at. falling into this uh, the Stalinist trap of you know one death is a tragedy a million deaths is a statistic. If you're beastly enough, people just lose the ability to comprehend, and it's somehow not as bad. And you're fighting against it in a very practical way. Yeah, it, it, you can't you can't get away from it. That's what I, I I think about that with the COVID deaths too. When you see hear the numbers, they're not numbers. But if you think that was Mima, that was Grammy, yeah. that was Gramps, those are th- that's a different thing in your head. Yes, it is, and we have to remember that, yeah. All right. Well, anyway, different kind of depressing. Facebook are proactively warning their customers, i.e. advertisers, that iOS 14's new privacy features will cut their revenue by an estimated 50%, and that they're considering ending the entire audience network tool on iOS, because they think it might not be viable anymore. Oh, wow. And I don't usually like uh, the register because they're very clickbaity, but Uh they actually win a prize from me for their headline for this story. (laughs) Facebook apologizes to users, comma, businesses for Apple's monstrous efforts to protect its customers' privacy. (laughs) That is is (laughs) clickbaity. It is clickbaity, but I do like that one. Wow. So Um, the privacy features will cut the revenue on their... On this, on what it's on their ad platform. Well, it's a it's a platform they use to track people across apps. Okay. Uh, so the, the the what there's a name for it in the show notes. Audience network, which is a very fancy way of saying everything you do gets tracked back to Facebook, so they can build up your profile. Hmm. And so if you own an app and you sign up to the audience network, Facebook pay you for hoovering up all this data. But if the users disable the ad tracking, Facebook can't connect the dots and therefore Facebook won't pay for the data because they can't tie it back to a Facebook profile. Wow. That, I think it's wonderful. That, it I've breaks never my been heart. So happy. 
it breaks my heart. I'm I'm just I'm so sad. <laughs> Meanwhile, the news industry is piling in as well. Actually, there was a wonderful line where they said that, how dare Apple get between us and our customer? I'm thinking, I'm sorry, your customer is not the people whose privacy you're stealing. Your customer is the advertisers who are paying you. <laughs> that's, that's so they're cute. all up on their high horse, too, because iOS is offering users some privacy. So I, I'm delighted about this. I think it's wonderful to see iOS making these people so cranky. Meanwhile, to end on a happy note, we have a happy note followed by a, a um, palate cleanser. So Glenn Fleischman, who we love, has created another one of his Take Control books. It's called Zoom Essentials. But because it's COVID times, he's giving it away for free. Oh, wow. Can you think of a more appropriate free Take Control book than <laughs> Zoom? I... Yeah, I, I'm, I'm still fascinated by how Zoom came out of literally nowhere to suddenly be the darling of of basically everybody and you know um steve's mom is really really good at at uh computer stuff she's really you know pretty nerdy she doesn't think she is but she is uh but steve's dad struggles a little bit but he's all over zoom you know they they, they did focused. something right they did you get a url you click a button and it just works yeah, I mean, you know, I'm not saying he doesn't have the camera pointed at the top of his head most of the time or anything like that, but that that's okay. That makes us, uh, gives us a good giggle, so. As long as someone in the family can initiate a meeting, almost anyone can join. And that's what Zoom got right. So, uh, yeah, I think they earned it by having good HCI, human-computer interaction. Um. And then finally, for a palate cleanser, I went to my favorite well of palate cleansing, XKCD. And this is, if we did palate cleansers in programming by stealth, I would have put this one in programming by stealth. <laughs> so you see this giant big pyramid that represents modern software. And at the bottom, holding everything up, it says like a tiny little open source project no one maintains anymore. <laughs> <laughs> so all modern digital infrastructure with this little pin. A, a project some random person in Nebraska has been thankfully no maintaining since 2003. <laughs> but this is this actually happened for real, which is why I think it was the EFF set up a fund. Because do you remember, was a heartbleed of one of those where basically everyone was relying on one of the open source encryption libraries and it was didn't have the resources to maintain itself properly. And actually, sorry, it was the Apache Foundation actually did a massive fundraiser to give them a million, uh, some like a few hundred thousand dollars injection. Um, but it was, um, was it OpenSSL or one of those really big ones that basically ended up causing us all such trouble. And everyone's like, oh, my God, we're all resting on this dependency and no one's funding oh, them. Wow. No one's giving them any money. Wow. <laughs> so it's, this, this one's real. But anyway, I, I thought it was funny. It just sort of looked over. Yep, that describes an awful lot of things. I like so it. that's I like all it. I got. Uh, and we, goodness me, did we do our best to stretch it out? But that, that really is that really is all there is. <laughs> that's okay. It's kind of fun to be able to relax. You know, a lot of times Bart and I are, uh, you know, I, I'm sitting here thinking, man, I got about eight questions. But if I ask him any more, we're never going to get done. So uh, it was kind of fun to have a little time to relax and talk about uh, iPad keyboards in the middle there. I liked it. Yes. Excellent. Okay. Well, anyway, regardless of how much fun we had today, it is still important that you remember to stay patched so you stay secure.
Well, that is going to wind us up for this week. Don't forget to send in your dumb questions, comments, and suggestions by emailing me at allison at podfeet.com. And you can follow me on Twitter at podfeet. Remember, everything good starts with podfeet.com. You want to become a patron? You go to podfeet.com slash Patreon. You want to maybe do a one-time donation? Podfeet.com slash PayPal. Want to join our Facebook community? Podfeet.com slash Facebook. How about joining Slack where Bart is over and we've got programming by stealth channels. We've got we've got just so much fun over there. Podfeet.com slash Slack. And if you want to join in the fun of the live show like Peter from Brisbane did for the first time, head on over to podfeet.com slash live on Sunday nights at 5 p.m. Pacific time and join the friendly and enthusiastic Nocilla Castaways. Thanks for listening and stay subscribed.